You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, George A. Romero gives us Monkey Shines of the Dead. Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 or seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and I'm running this monkey farm! And I'm Thomas Mariani, and I'm gonna cut your guts open! They're gonna be pig guts. Pig guts. Yep. And you're gonna choke on them. Chocada. Rotting pig guts, um, as we will talk about, I'm sure, uh, as we get to our features. But, Adam, we're not the only people here. We have a guest returning to talk uh, all sorts of Romero horror and social commentary with us. He is the zombie who, despite the fact that he's missing a lower jaw, is going to be able to talk to us tonight. It is Christian Alvarez. Christian, welcome. Hi, Adam. Hi, Thomas. I'm just here to tell you they're coming to get you, Barbara. I don't believe either of us is named Barbara, but watch out, Barbara, if you're listening. But uh, tonight, we are talking about Mr. George A. Romero, a horror icon who sadly left us a few years ago. But uh, we're talking about him because uh, we are graced, as of recent, with a new Romero film, to some extent. Um, Arguably, it's more of like a short PSA weird thing that Shudder found that he made in the 70s called The Amusement Park, which is out now if you have Shudder. You can watch that 53-minute little feature, and uh, I've seen it, and I'll say it's it's a very interesting sort of like little time capsule thing to finally see of Romero. Um, I know Adam hasn't seen it yet, but Christian, have you seen The Amusement Park yet? I haven't had the chance to see it yet because my local art house is apparently going to be playing it, and I wanted to wait to watch it with them to help support them. They're kind of coming back from uh, their shutdown. Right, right. But, of course, we wanted to have you on because, Christian, you're a big horror fan. In fact, uh, the last time we had you on, we talked about a George e. Romero movie with Creepshow back in our Stephen yes. King episode a few months ago this year. Would you say, especially in terms of the, the horror landscape, you're a pretty big fan of Mr. Romero? Yeah, I mean, he's kind of the Stan Lee of the horror world. I mean... Being such an independent movie maker from such an early time and becoming so iconic over the years, we probably wouldn't have directors like, say, John Carpenter, Wes Craven, Toby Hooper, or even modern filmmakers like Edgar Wright, people like him, or uh, even Jordan Peele. I feel like uh, George Romero kind of influenced all of them to kind of break out on their own. Well, and where did you first uh, discover Romero? What was like the first film of his you really glommed onto when you were younger in discovering the horror genre? Probably the easiest one that uh, I hopped onto was Night of the Living Dead because uh, it being part of the public domain from the time, you know, 
I was a teenager, I found it on DVD, super cheap, and watched through that. But I really got into his stuff with probably one of the movies we're talking about today, Day of the Dead. It's weird how I said this on Twitter, but like how Romero is responsible for both one of the most easily accessible films, particularly on home video with Don Night of the Living Dead, and then the exact opposite with Dawn of the Dead. Like, it is so hard to, to find, like, a good either physical copy or streaming anywhere. Good luck if you're trying to watch Dawn of the Dead, because it's so rough to try and find. Um, but, Adam, I know you're a big horror fan. We met through doing a lot of horror stuff. And uh, what, what was your introduction to Romero, and what would you really appreciate about him as a director? Well, my introduction to him was probably, honestly, Night of the Living Dead 90. Because I've heard of the original Night of the Living Dead and everything, of course, you know, like, when I grew up with it, my mom would always say that was the most terrifying movie she's ever seen. So it always had a stigma. And I knew of the other ones, but I just didn't see them. I was too young. And, you know, obviously Night of Living Dead 90 came out. And I was only seven and I saw it. And uh, it scared the shit out of me, but I was so fascinated by it at the same time that I kind of always wanted to go back and, and watch the original. And I did that probably a couple of years later. And then I just kind of went down the line and, and watched basically everything's put out except for Amusement Park at this point. But uh, my, my favorite thing about Romero is, A, he just kind of did whatever the hell he wanted. Um, he almost had carte blanche within his own little independent community to just sort of make the movies how he wanted to make them for the most part. You know, as you can see, that, that whenever the studio actually did uh, get involved, when he did do a studio picture, they kind of bastardized his, his movies. Uh, you know, a little bit one that we're going to talk about today, but... I'd argue it's for the better. And then, you know, like land of the dead and things like that. But, uh, you know, and the other thing too, we wouldn't have the modern sort of zombie as it is without Romero. This is the first like major flesh eating ghouls, zombies. They came from him. And, uh, you know, just, if anything, you got to respect him for that alone. No. Yeah, definitely. I think Romero was somebody who initially, when I was sort of getting introduced to the genre, he was more of just like a figurehead person. Uh, a lot of like, oh, this is, reminds me of Romero, or this is a poor imitation, or a, a loving tribute to Romero, that kind of thing. But I think the first time I ever watched any of his movies was probably Creepshow, which we talked about, like I said, a f several episodes ago. Um, is such a wonderful movie that I really appreciate, especially with that movie, it's such a great marriage of like him and Stephen King. And Stephen King was definitely somebody that I was exposed to a lot more when I was younger. And as I sort of grew in my horror appreciation, as I got close to like high school and stuff like that, I watched a lot of his movies. In particular, I remember I had a great night where I was visiting my cousins for like spring break and um, they were big movie buffs. And I told them I'd never seen any of the Living Dead movies. And they had, this was at the time when not too long after Land of the Dead was out on video. So we watched like all of them in one night, the, those four in one night, and I was, like, astonished by especially, like, what I could see from, like, other horror movies I'd already seen that had been clearly imitated, and also just, like, how these movies managed to be, like, very clear social commentaries that were still able to be very entertaining and very lively and fun. And I remember even there was a point where I kind of got disenchanted with Romero, where I was just like, oh, you know, his movies are so, like, nail on the head, there's no subtlety to them whatsoever, I'm not really as engaged. As I get older, I'm like, you know what, people might not fucking get it. So, of course, like, the, the subtlety might not be warranted for, like, these big movies. Like, it's it's a thing where, like, as I grow up and see more and more people, like, fail to acknowledge, like, the truths that Romero was speaking of all the way back to, like, 68 and onward. It kind of shows it's just like, well, maybe, um, 
Romero kind of knew that we wouldn't quite grow into the subtlety that we might clamor for with this work. So he's just going to nail it on the head for you. And I think that makes like the messages endure all the more because unfortunately we repeat certain things from like either the living dead movies or like the crazies and these other ones where even if the movies didn't quite work when he first made them, he still had like so many great ideas that firmly speak to any time, either when they were made or into the future as it is. Yeah. I mean, that's the one thing, you know, their last, his movies have very, very strong sort of lasting power. I mean, there's things you can watch all the way from the original Night of the Living Dead to almost any of the dead movies, I'd argue, especially the first three, um, and sort of find subtext and content and, you know, sort of subliminal, if you want to call it that, that are still very prescient, but a lot of it still sort of rings true today. There's nothing subliminal about it, though. It's very, very yeah, in your face. So there's, right ahead. Yeah. there's nothing hidden whatsoever under that but uh, christian do you think you lose anything by having it be so overt with the messaging from romero or do you think uh, it still really is able to ring true despite how uh, unsubtle it might be well i feel like he's able to kind of drive home his point very well you hand it off to other filmmakers in particularly with the dawn of the dead remake it kind of gets it kind of feels a little less genuine and a lot more like hokey. There is a certain charm with how do it yourself and very independent George A. Romero's movies have always been. So with him, I never had a problem with him being outright, like kind of in your face with all of the social messaging. Yeah. I think maybe it became more of a factor later in his career, I would say where he sort of had to like live up to that legend I think by the time, especially you get to the very later dead movies that were his sort of swan song from filmmaking, they feel a lot more kind of like, oh, I have to have this message in here, but I'm not sure what exactly I'm saying. Like, we mentioned this because Diary of the Dead was also one we did, and that's such a sad example of like an old man like yelling at the clouds, quite frankly, <laughs> as a movie. Just like, you, you want to speak about technology and kids, but you have no idea what the hell you're talking about, unfortunately. And I think... What's interesting about our double feature today, because if you're new, every week Adam and I cover a double feature based on uh, movies we picked at the end of our previous episode that are based around the topic. Uh, we ended up with uh, Adam had a good pick that ended up being Day of the Dead from 1985, and then I had, I had my bad pick, which was Monkey Shines, Then uh, that one came out in 1988. So I think you really get, I think this is a fulcrum crucial point for Romero, because it feels like... Day of the Dead is the last gasp of, like, the earlier part of his career, the independent thing we're talking about. And then Monkey Shines kind of represents the later downturn in his career. What I would argue, after Day of the Dead, you didn't get as many hits from him. Uh, I mean, I think that's pretty much public knowledge. <laughs> but, yeah. Yes, I absolutely agree. We'll, we'll go ahead and talk about that. We'll go ahead and start talking about that with uh, Day of the Dead. George A. Romero takes us out of the night, beyond the dawn, and into the darkest day of horror the world has ever known. Day of the Dead. There have to be survivors in Washington. Oh, my. They have more sophisticated shelters than this one. They can be tricked into being good little girls and boys. Same way we were tricked into it. Promise of some reward to come. What the fuck is wrong with you people? They're dead! They're fucking dead, and you want to teach them tricks? George A. Romero's Day of the Dead. 
the most eagerly awaited day in horror film history. So Day of the Dead came out, as I mentioned, 1985, July 19th, 1985, uh, from writer-director George A. Romero, and is the third in his Living Dead trilogy, obviously after Night of the Living Dead in 1968 and Dawn of the Dead in 1978, um, and those two were obviously pretty big cultural landmarks when they came out, uh, particularly Night of the Living Dead being just so shocking, and as we mentioned, being so publicly distributed around one of the most seen horror movies of all time and dawn especially at the time being like the more commercial hit being like such a massive success to the point where um it prompted eventually Romero to do day of the dead as part of like a three-picture deal with the company he made um creep show and also a movie called night riders with which if you've not seen night riders is one of the uh, weirdest movies that's ever been made. <laughs> it is a two and a half hour movie about a ren fair where instead of riding horses, these guys are like in night suits riding motorcycles. It's very interesting and weird. <laughs> it's such a unique movie. But Day of the Dead was like the big selling point uh, to like sort of capitalize on the Living Dead series and love especially for dawn of the dead and at the time it wasn't very loved it was kind of seen as a disappointment when it came out initially but a lot of people have sort of reclaimed it in the last you know 30 or so years since including adam i believe you've told me many times before and i think you still have this claim to this day this is your favorite dead film oh i mean yeah i mean by leaps and bounds uh i mean this is a perfect movie to me i was kind of blown away by it uh right in the beginning by the practical effects, which I believe, I think are the best practical effects out of the trilogy. The population of characters, too, that are just so fucking wacky and over the top, like all of them are in their own way. None as much as, you know, Rhodes and Frankenstein. But they're all just so weird and goofy, and it's just, it's kind of nutty, but it's really self-contained in this one sort of area. But it's brutally bleak, and... It's just almost a dark comedy with some of the the way the performances are. It's just perfect, man. <laughs> this is one of the very few movies that I, I've seen that I watched that I can pretty much find zero fault with. I think it's pretty perfect from beginning to end. What would you say makes it so leaps and bounds better than, say, A Dawn or Night to you? Well, one, the characters. They're more exciting in this. Like, don't get me wrong. I love the characters in Dawn. I love sort of the dynamic between Cooper and Ben and the original, but this is also probably the strongest female character that's been in a, in the original trilogy. Like she's pretty tough, dude. Like she don't take no shit from nobody. Rhodes is brilliant as this sort of, as the antagonist. Frankenstein is super fun. I love the idea that it's this sort of military unit and this group of scientists that are just basically 100% abandoned. They have no idea if the outside world even exists for the most part. And you have to follow each of these weird personalities. And it's it's almost like it begs you to, to either be 100% in or you're not going to like it. Like, if you can't just be in 100% with this movie, you're not going to enjoy it. I kind of appreciate the ballsy aspect of that. What it was originally supposed to be, this sort of big epic and it got really scaled down due to budgetary reasons and things like that. And this is still the outcome. Uh, I find it just amazing. Well, and Christian, I, uh, what are your thoughts um, on it, and especially in comparison to the other uh, previous two Dead movies? Well, this is probably of the Dead trilogy, a uh, movie that I kind of attach myself the most to. Like Adam said, I found the effects the like top tier and everything. The characters are very engaging. 
the lack of score really helps you appreciate how well done it is when it does come through. And yeah, you genuine be- genuinely believe that this is like the end of the road for all of these characters, and they're so desperately clinging on to any bit of hope that they can come come across. The messaging does kind of kind of come from the helicopter pilots, Terry Alexander, when he's saying, uh, "All of this bad stuff is happening. You need to try to find some way to find happiness through all of this and live your life." Alongside that. The villains, you want to see them, like, dying screaming, and this is the only one of the movies where you get to see the villains actually get any sort of just comeuppance. Uh, Initially, when I watched these, like, together, this was the one I thought was the weakest at the time when I was younger. I still liked it, but I still did definitely feel like, oh, it's too talky, it doesn't have as much of, like, the gore stuff until the very end of the movie, that kind of stuff. Um, but I think as I've grown older, this is the only one that's grown in appreciation for me. Like, I've felt the same way about Dawn, which is I would still say is my personal favorite. Um, and I rewatched the first three leading up to this, um, and I, I still think that movie um, is raw-looking, entertaining fun. And Night of Living Dead is incredibly well put together for how small a budget it was. Even though I, I do agree, I think Barbara is the one kind of, like, issue with that movie. And I think even some of the remakes have improved on that character. Um, but this Day of the Dead is the one that's really improved with me. Especially by this watch. There was a point where, you know, this was obviously, like, a distant third. And now as I've gotten older, it's a very close second with, like, a dawn. Because I think it's what you guys are talking about. There's There's so much of, like, this building dread... And there's so much more of, like, there's no time for the rock and fun of Dawn. More people, I think, expected that at the time. But I think with Day, there's so much more of this appreciation of, like, look, we have been here for, like, years. And things are dwindling. Hope is dwindling. Resources are dwindling. There's not much that we have to go on here. There's not much hope. And I think it's a respectful way of really getting to the point of, like, when humanity has still survived however it has this far into things... Like, you can't really have that much hope right from the opening where you get the great shots of Fort Myers, Florida, where um, I'm not too far from Fort Myers. A lot of those places are still there, like a lot of the buildings. It's really interesting just watching it again, especially Um, how just everything is so desperate that, like, even these zombies are so ubiquitous that the alligators are just walking around with them. Which is, by the way, incredible. They have an actual alligator walking next to these zombie actors. Kudos to the zombie actors for being able to walk around that <laughs> fucking alligator. Uh, not me. No. But um, I, I think that that's what works so interestingly, is that you really get the sense that so much of humanity is gone. And even the few people that are left have completely lost whatever humanity as a desperate attempt to kind of survive. And I think I agree the cast of characters is really impressive, even with some things like uh, Terry Alexander with his accents that isn't, you know, the most authentic West Indian accent, um, but at the same time, he delivers so much, like, the great dialogue, particularly his whole speech in Paradise, where he just talks about, like, oh, look at all these records, all these negatives of your favorite movies, um, all these little indications of, like, when natural disasters happened. What the fuck does it matter? We're not going to learn from this. There's nothing left to progress to. There's nothing we can learn from the past. We fucked up and didn't actually learn anything when it was crucial. And I think um, it, it's really respectful. I agree that he's able to go that depressingly dark with the zombie movie in a way that I think few zombie movies do as authentically and intelligently. Yeah, I mean, and there's a reason behind it, you know, which all zombie movies try to have a reason behind it. But this is the one that I'd argue pro- really shows a sort of 
toll it takes on all these different characters. I mean, even the the main characters we follow, and basically you get the idea she's addicted to some kind of painkiller. Her boyfriend is losing his fucking mind. You know, the doctor is experimenting on the dead soldiers. The, you know, the helicopter pilot and his, you know, partner are just excluding themselves and just drinking the days away. Like, it, it's just sort of, sh- I really like the dynamic of really showing all these different personalities dealing with this awful, awful shit, but all in their own way, in a different way, in, a, in their own coping mechanisms. You know, obviously some characters give a li- are given more screen time than others in this movie, but you sort of get the idea who most of them are without having to get a full backstory. You you understand who these characters are, like, you know, the two assholes, soldiers, Rhodes, all this shit. Like, you understand their character dynamic, and it's it's done pretty smartly and sharply. Yeah, I think particularly it has the most um, morally ambiguous characters. I would argue you mentioned Laurie Candle, yep. we should give credit to, is the main star, um, as Dr. Sarah Bowman, is the most noble, but everyone else, even, like, Terry Alexander or Jarieth Conroy as, like, her two buddies, are still, like, they're very much in it for themselves, and either, like, uh, Jarieth oh, yeah. is, like, fully into, like, I'm gonna drink as much as I can, or Terry Alexander, like we mentioned, is so nihilistic, um, but at the same time, they're still far more, um, sort of, like, sympathetic than even like a Richard Libertini as Dr. Frankenstein, as they say, uh, who is definitely this guy who like, oh, he's trying to research and find out more about zombies, but he's doing it through like these horrible methods of try- rewarding them with the guts of people who have died. Or then when we get to Joseph Pilato as Rhodes, uh, R.I.P. Mr. Pilato, uh, with just the, the most performance. Not, not even like the most of any adjective, just the most performance ever given in a film. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. I feel like with Joe Pilato as Captain Rhodes, I feel like he has kind of become the archetype for any type of antagonistic character in any current zombie movie as well. No, yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. I think he's become sort of like the the main thing where it's like, oh, hey, we have to have a human antagonist. We have to have him be as monstrous as possible. And I would argue, even though he is being very over the top, I think a lot of the other people, even uh, Anthony DeLeo Jr., plays Miguel, the the one uh, boyfriend of uh, Dr. Bowman, who is uh, going pretty crazy. He's also going over the top. But Pilato, at least, I think, is committing so much to the idea that, like, a man in power would definitely, like, not give any shit about subtlety. Like, there is no attempting to be, like, a nuanced person after a certain point being down there in this giant great set that's this actual mine in Pittsburgh that's just, like, so dank and so... Like, the, they're just rats living down here, trying to, like, scrape by. Like, I think the, the performances that don't work for me, the only one, I would say, is even, like, some of the privates who are there, particularly Ralph Marrero as Private Robert Reckles, who's the guy that just laughs all the time. He's the uh-huh. one where I'm just like, I'm not a fan of this dude. He has a great death scene, but I'm not a fan he's, of this dude. Yeah. He's super annoying. Yep. I mean, he's incredibly annoying. But, I mean, obviously, that's the point. You want that fucker dead so bad. And uh, so they definitely sell up the annoyance factor on him. I feel like a lot of that is conveyed better by the guy, Gary Clark, who plays like the main sort of John Goodman-y big guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the private. I think he's great at just being especially 
uh, so controlling. Just like, oh, this this motherfucker can't even like capture anything. Like you're all fucking up. Um, he plays at least like the more human one. Especially anytime he yells about Rhodes, like Rhodes, you son of a bitch, as he's like driving away and shit like that. <laughs> Great stuff. But I want to talk about especially my favorite performance in the movie is someone who's not technically human, um, or at least used to be, is uh, Sherman Howard as the character Bub. Which is a, a, a good transition to talk about the zombies in general, but Bub specifically, who is a zombie that uh, the Frankenstein character is, is experimenting on and is able to find, like, oh, he recognizes certain behaviors and all this other stuff from humanity. I think Bub is the, cl- the best zombie in any Romero movie. I think it's because, like, there's obviously like, been so many, like, in every single one of these movies, you have, like, oh, there's the helicopter zombie, or the Harry Krishna zombie, or the first zombie from Night of the Living Dead, the little girl zombie in the, the basement from Night of the Living Dead. There are so many memorable ones, but I would argue Bub is the perfect way of, I think, really translating the idea that there is still humanity left in these creatures. And Bub, like, I would argue Sherman Howard's performance is, like, Karloff level, like, emotionally engaging despite not having any dialogue, despite not being really that much of, like, a human character. I get so much pathos and tragedy out of that character, particularly as you see him, like, start to recognize things and kind of almost grow a bit more as a being. He might not be human, but he, he feels like he's at least getting a bit more cognitive as a being because of Dr. Frankenstein. And when he sees Dr. Frankenstein dead, you just see him, like, really wail and have so much anger and regret over so much of these things. It's such an interesting turn that I think Romero would... Do some interesting things with in Land of the Dead, which I think is underappreciated, but I think perfectly handles here with Bub. Yeah, I mean, I'll take what you said as it being the best zombie in the Romero films and, and raise you to say it's the best zombie performance ever. The way he emotes with his eyes, and it also helps that he has those bright blue, crystal blue eyes. But yeah, just how you almost get like a father-toddler relationship with Frankenstein and him, where he's almost like teaching him all these little things and he's, you know, really proud to show him that he can do it. And it's really kind of fantastic. And yes, they tried it again, uh, you know, in Land of the Dead. I mean, it's not unsuccessful, but it's not nearly as just sort of endearing as this one. Put some fucking respect on Big Daddy's name, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Eugene Clark deserves more respect, goddammit. But anyway, anyway, we're not talking about that movie. Christian, how do you feel about Bub? And would you maybe agree it's the best zombie performance ever in the film? Um, I'd definitely say that it is probably one of the most touching zombie performances. It definitely has inspired movies like uh, Warm Bodies and everything about showing kind of the the humanity that remains in the undead characters. And yeah, it, it is very Boris Karloff-like. I, I think what I really like is, you mentioned the toddler thing earlier, Adam, and I think that's what's so interesting is I, I watched a great interview with Sherman Howard where he talked about the idea that he and Romero wanted to treat the Bub character as kind of like this this infant who basically hasn't been able to like really cognitively get a control over his this tool that is his body that he's just discovered. I think that's what works so remarkably well about it is that there's an innocence to Bub, even though he's a flesh-eating zombie. You get the sense it's like, oh, he is just this innocent person who has these vague notions of being able to, like, pick up a phone or play music or stuff like that. But it, it shows that, like, these creatures aren't as disposable as they've been previously. That's what I really like about the entire Dead series up to Land of the Dead, is that Romero really develops the world, not just in terms of the decay, but also even the zombies, where in the original movie they are monstrous ghouls with absolutely no humanity to them at all. 
in Dawn of the Dead, there's a bit more personality there with individual zombies, but it still is very much like giant hordes who can still recognize things, like particularly going to the shopping mall, obviously. And then with Day, I think they really managed to develop as like, there is still humanity left in these creatures. There's still some glimmer there, and there's still at least, like I said, if not human, then they are some kind of cognitive creature who has the ability for constructive thought. It just might take them a bit longer to get to that point. And... I think that's what makes, like, these dead movies so much more interesting than, like, nothing I hate more as, like, a guy who likes horror movies than people who are so obsessed with very strict rules about stuff like zombies or, you know, other creatures. And I think Romero really realized, that, like, no, you can, I can't just do the same thing again. Like, I think a lot of people at the time wanted a Dawn of the Dead, and he was like, no, I can't just fucking do Dawn of the Dead again. Like, what point does that serve? That's just a fucking dumb thing to do. I'm not going to be able to, like, really gain much or really develop as much as a filmmaker or a storyteller by just repeating everything. So with stuff like Bub or the intense darkness that we're talking about of this, like, movie, you, you get a sense he's like, I really want to develop and grow either this universe or just my filmmaking crafts by doing something totally different. And I think he did such an incredible job of that with this one. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, you know, I've heard some of that flack thrown towards his way about sort of Dawn and his later ones. Like, you know, these aren't my zombies. Hey, fuck nuts. You're telling them they're not the zombies that he created. How about he can do whatever he wants? How about anybody could do whatever they want? Because, you know, not real. It's not a real thing. There are no set rules. There are no set guidelines. You can make them whatever you want. And I'd argue that Romero, through doing several movies, as you've seen other people who have done like a bunch of zombie movies and stuff, has had the most growth from beginning to sort of where they ended up and the most natural progression. Like if you watch Dawn and then watch Day, it kind of makes sense that this is where we would be now. It's not a huge, crazy jump. It's just, it feels like it's natural. Like within the couple years or whatever, that's supposedly the time that takes place between Dawn and Day. Like it makes sense. While we're talking about the zombie nature of all this, we got to talk about it, obviously. Uh, this was Tom Savini once again collaborating with Romero after so many other projects. Uh, he did the effects work in both the movies we're talking about tonight, but he has said many times, and I think I can agree with him, that this is his at least masterpiece of particularly blood, guts, and like zombie makeup in general. There's so much diverse range in all the zombies. There are different costumes, there are different deaths that happen, uh, the different looks even of individual zombies. I want to ask everybody, what is your favorite sort of like makeup gag or zombie appearance or whatever? Like what would really make this stand out to you as sort of like the big highlight of Savini's work in this movie? Christian, what about for you? Definitely say it's when the soldier is being like uh, laid down on the wooden pallets. And as all of the zombies are, like, tearing at his throat, you just start hearing his voice, like, increasing in pitch, essentially. And um, when, like, he's finally decapitated, you still see the head, like, writhing around in pain and everything. It's, it's easily Tom Savini's, like, most inventive work. It's a vast improvement from Dawn of the Dead, which was already fantastic because I think Savini was tied to doing stuff like creep show slasher movies like friday the 13th and everything so in this when we he gets to this point he's a master of his craft yeah i would argue it's it feels kind of like his last lingering thread like it, it feels not just like it's his masterpiece but it's also his last really attempt to do that because not too long after this he would stop doing makeup effects and start directing and stuff like that it feels like this is his sort of big uh, au revoir 
to the big makeup stuff, and he really just let it all out with this one. And but Adam, what about that question earlier about what's your favorite sort of makeup effects gag in this? Well, it was going to be the one Christian said, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> but Such no, a good you know, one. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing, and he like his eyeball like almost pops too. It's so disgusting. You know, one of the best in this too, and it's one of the most super subtle ones. It's with the Cooper body where his head's gone and yet his spinal cord and brain is still there. And obviously it's the age old gag where the guy's head's below the table and everything like that. Anytime I've seen that gag before, you can sort of see the fake shoulders or whatever they have to use to hide it. Not this time. It's dead ass. Like that's that guy's arms. That's his chest. That's his shoulders. That's a really good one. But one of my favorite, most disgusting ones is sort of the zombie slash where she sees Miguel do it in his dream where he sort of turns and the autopsy skin sort of opens and all the fucking insides spill out. It's so gross yet so effective. Yeah, and I love the fact that they did that by like the guy is like basically drooped down with his chest so that they can have the actual appliance there, which is tremendous, especially because like it looks like it's always even level. It feels not entirely seamless, but as seamless as you could possibly get with a pre-computer age. I definitely agree. Um, I would say my favorite gag is one that I think combines all sorts of different techniques really well, which is in the middle of the scene where they're all running around in the sort of neon uh, blue and red lit uh, darkness uh, near the climax, and they're into the one zombie who gets uh, half decapitated with the shovel because it combines so many things where it's like, Initially, when the shovel comes down, it's very much the arrow Steve Martin thing through the head, where it's just like a shovel with like just enough dot out of it for like the it's a go on in front of this guy's mouth, and then an actual dummy for like it to actually be decapitated. And then as they're walking away, and they see the half head still alive and like moving its eyes around, it's like an animatronic. That is such a perfect representation of how you can make something work with like the practical effects. And it feels like real and vibrant and still just like right there in front of your face. I love that effect and how just like it's three different things working together beautifully. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. In fact, I love that whole sequence. And just the idea that they're trapped down there in the dark with God knows how many of them. But yes, I do think that the shovel sort of top decapitation sort of scene, it looks almost dead ass real. It's really, really, that's a really good solid pick. But I don't think we should go too much further without just spotlighting at least the Rhodes death, which is kind of like the famous oh. one of all of these. It was also so interesting given that like Joseph Pilato had so much issue with that sequence in particular where like all the guts that he had used for all other parts of the movie um, had been in unrefrigerated state. So they smelled awful and they can only do that effect once but he's down there especially where like he's mostly underneath the ground while they have the fake body there to like tear apart and he is just like sniffing weeks of uh, rotted gore yeah (laughs) that poor dude (laughs) just having to like swift all that in but particularly how he's able to especially manage to deliver one of the iconic zombie lines with the choke on him which was completely improvised just a stellar way of like sending that character out yeah, dude, it's amazing. Just the inflection of his voice, too. Like, I love that he's not yelling uh, in his normal tone. He's actually taking into consideration, like, oh, they just ripped him apart. I mean, even starting from he's trying to egg on Bub, and then as soon as he opens that door and all of those zombies are there, just the screaming that he does, it's like you could tell by the look on his face that he knows he's absolutely screwed. Or even him getting shot by Bub before that. I love all that stuff. And Bub doing the salute and everything. It's so 
perfect and just bob goes off into the night just like fuck yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> such a great zombie move i guess also it's like i kind of talked about earlier before we go into final thoughts it's so unfortunate that this feels like it's the last of an era for romero it feels so much like this is the last of him kind of being able to even with as i mentioned this was originally like a larger scale he said like gone with the wind with zombies style like massive epic and some of that stuff he would later do in land of the dead with a bigger studio budget as he ultimately would have there um it, it feels like this is definitely at the last of him being able to like make these great movies in pittsburgh with a bunch of friends uh because after this it would be either like bigger studio things where we take the long breaks and stuff like that uh, it's it's unfortunate that like this really does i think feel like not just the last gasp for like practical effects for like a savini but it feels like the really the last big thing for romero as well you know, he did land and the studio got involved and really sort of fucked it up, man. I mean, I still really like the movie, but you could tell that it's not exactly what he wanted. And I think that really sort of kind of changed him a little bit. Because then when you see his next two dead films that were completely sort of he could do what he want, it's just not there. It's it's definitely not there anymore, um, which is unfortunate. But yeah, I, I, I would definitely say Day is the end. I mean, I would even argue that even in the the movie we'll talk about next, but also even his few bits of 90s output also show a lot of that, like, something's a bit gone. Yeah, it definitely does feel like it's kind of a tail end of kind of his creative freedom and also just he never was really able to recapture a lot of what made him so great in the earlier half of his career. Yeah. I think that's why day works so well, sort of like a finale for at least this original trilogy. And even you could watch this and not watch the other three movies. Um, and still get, I think at least this weird thing where it's both his most like bitter and, uh, pessimistic one of these, but also leaves you with a more of a bit of hope. By the ending when they're on that island, it, it has this weird mixture of like, oh, there's a lot of doom, but at the same time, there's a lot of potential hope that they can survive this. But let's go ahead and go into our final thoughts, because we do have another movie to talk about. We've gone, been going quite a while on Day of the Dead. So, uh, Christian, your final thoughts on Day of the Dead. It's probably my favorite of the of the Dead series. Through the effects, Bub as a character, it's definitely... Uh, Karloff level Frankenstein story with him. Um, the characters are very interesting. And yeah, I'd say that this is kind of his triumph. And unfortunately, it turned out to be his swan song as well. And Adam? I mean, I already said uh, this is one of my favorite zombie movies if not my favorite zombie movie it's definitely my favorite romero movie i i I do i just think it's perfect i I think the characters the gore the production everything about it just it works it all comes together and uh yeah i I can't recommend it enough it's just it's perfect like i said i initially just thought like oh this is all right when i first saw it and every time i've seen it it's really grown for me as a zombie movie, and as just a Romero movie, so many other things. I think it has so much more to say than some of his other movies do, and it says it more eloquently, um, If once again, not subtly, but I think it just says it so much more wonderfully with, I agree, a lot of great characters, a lot of great uh, makeup effects work that's phenomenal. And also, I think it also goes to show that, like, the other two movies, even though I, like I said, I prefer Dawn, and I think Night is great, I it's interesting that those two at least had remakes, I would argue, are still good, 
versus the two times I've tried to remake this movie, they have been maybe the worst examples. Particularly Bloodline. Oh boy, yeah. Is like one of the worst movies I've ever seen. And I'm especially with how they completely destroyed the Bub character is uh, disgraceful, quite frankly. They could have just pissed on Romero's grave and saved a lot of money rather than doing what they fucking did with that one. Uh, but as it stands, yeah, if you have maybe dismissed Day of the Dead, I would definitely recommend giving it another shot. I would say now, upon this rewatch especially, it's become my third favorite Romero movie in general. After Creepshow's my favorite, Dawn is second, but this is a very close third. Those are three just phenomenal films. I think it deserves that kind of a praise, for sure. But uh, before we get into our next feature, here is a promo for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. Of the myriad pop culture podcasts, there is one that blends in with them all. Flying under the radar, nagging at you at a subconscious level. Nerd Bliss, where four hosts from the Deep South and anyone that can get to appear for store brand coffee and corn nuts talk about science fiction, pop culture, current affairs, and more. You can find us at nerdblisspodcast.com or on the ESO network. Nerd Bliss. It's one word. All right, now let's get into uh, Romero's follow-up film, Monkey Shines. Once there was a man whose prison was a chair. The man had a monkey. They made the strangest pair. What kind of experiment was it, Jeff? The man was the prisoner. The monkey held the key. You want to be the boss now, is that it? Stop it! No matter how he tried, the man couldn't flee. The man tried to keep the monkey from his brain, but every move he made became the monkey's gain. Did you do that or did she? She did it. That's right. She did it. The monkey ruled the man. It climbed inside his head. And now, as fate would have it, one of them is dead. Monkey Shines, an experiment in fear. So, Monkey Shines came out July 29th, 1988, uh, based on the novel by Miles Stewart. And if you don't know what Monkey Shines is, uh, basically it's the story of Alan Mann, who uh, is in law school but also is an athlete. He's a big runner. And uh, early on in the movie, you see him get into a terrible accident that leads him uh, to have quadriplegia. And he is paralyzed from the, um, below the neck, so he's in a wheelchair, and he has to, like, move around, basically, with, like, this little th- uh, device in front of his mouth so he can do much. There's a lot of, obviously, limited ability for him as a character. So he ends up getting a helper monkey from his buddy, who was a weird, drugged-out scientist guy that uh, has injected this monkey with some sort of weird, uh, like, genetic hormones of some sort that make it the monkey uh, Ella... Um, at least very helpful to uh, the Alan character initially. As Alan starts getting close to the trainer of the monkey and all this other stuff, the the monkey starts to grow jealous and also has a weird, maybe, psychic connection with the Alan character. Uh, If you're thinking this sounds weird, it is. It's a very weird movie, (laughs) and this was my pick for a bad pick because Romero's made plenty of bad movies, I think, like I said, especially post-Day of the Dead. But I would argue, of his lesser movies, Monkey Shines is the most fascinating because it feels definitely like it was a studio production we kind of mentioned this is one of the ones that got fucked with when he actually did work with a studio a few times he wasn't doing independent movies and it shows but also i find it curiously engaging if not good because 
at every turn there's a wrong decision, but an oddly watchable wrong decision. I would argue. Christian, how do you feel about monkey shots? You can definitely see the studio's hand in this, and it seems like in a post-creep show, Romero's career, they were just like, well, we want this to be kind of like you do attempting to do Stephen King, but not having any idea about what makes Stephen King's works actually deliver something interesting. This feels like a very interesting mashup of both Misery and Christine, actually. I think that's pretty apt. Uh, but Adam, what about what are your thoughts on Monkey Shots? Man, this movie fucking sucks, dude. It's <laughs> <laughs> it's so boring, dude. And it is it, it just it drags ass. The third act of this movie feels like it takes for fucking ever to actually get to its end point. I remember when I first saw this movie, I thought it was terrible. I remember the second time I saw it, I thought it was terrible. And why rewatching it today, yeah, I still think it's pretty terrible, dude. It's populated by really unlikable characters. Other than the um the monkey trainer, everyone else in it really kind of sucks. And which is not necessarily a bad thing, but you're supposed to sort of like get behind you know, the main guy, and, and he's just kind of a jerk. Like, I understand it's maybe because of the monkey or whatever the fuck. It doesn't matter. He's just unlikable. And, I mean, long live the Tooch. Really early Toochie. Awesome. He fucking, he, he hasn't changed at all. Excuse me, except he still has hair. That's the weird thing is he's kind of balding <laughs> at this point as opposed to being bald. But barely, though. It's very thinning. Best part of the movie is when the guy gets hit by the truck and he does like a gymnastics like <laughs> spin in the air. Like it's really slow motion. And it's kind of like impressive. Like, wow. It's weird where like he gets hit by this car. Normally, you know, obviously someone would like propel forward as opposed to up right. like a rocket. <laughs> oh yeah. And he's doing like a beautiful three sixty like spin. Like it's pretty phenomenal. But yeah, no, it's just it's I just I think it's such a chore to get through this one. I don't know about the chore aspect of it, because I agree, I think it's too long, but at the same time, there's always just, like, these weird moves where this feels so much like Romero really wanting to kind of reinvent himself, because after the sort of disappointment of Day of the Dead, it definitely feels like him trying to, as Christian mentioned, I think, trying to do, like, a Stephen King-style story, uh, but at the same time, he's trying so many different things, like, Early in the movie, it feels more like this drama about a person who's become paralyzed. And then it becomes like this weird sort of like, oh, really pleasant, sweet movie about him befriending this helper monkey that's like really helping his life. And then the romance angle uh, with the Kate McNeil character, who I agree is probably like the best performance and the most likable character of the movie. But then as it goes along, it's just like it takes all these weird avenues. It's just like, oh, hey, now we're going to do a weird like science gone wrong mad scientist movie now we're going to do like uh like christian mentioned like a weird misery kind of like oh i'm a crazed lover in this case with a monkey um the monkey feels like he's just like so attached to this human <laughs> it's just like you stay away from my man and i gotta say also uh the ella character which we should credit uh, amongst other monkeys the main one it was a monkey named boo as a capuchin monkey um who they trained to star in this movie some of the most impressive monkey acting i would argue in a movie like, Ella feels like an actual character, which is baffling to me. It's such impressive work on that monkey, but also the editing team to make that actually feel like, I would argue, like an actual character to me. They kiss. Him and the monkey do be kissing. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just so fucking weird to me, dude. I don't, I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't think this movie is made for me. I don't know who the hell it was made for. Oh, no one. Spoilers, no one. is <laughs> Like, this movie is made for <laughs> just absolutely no one. So much of this just feels so, like, nobody really knows what they want from this. Like, the score sounds like it wants to try to kind of be like a Spielberg movie. And, like, they they do want to make it seem so uplifting. And then they'll just have, you know, the main character, Alan, just say, like, the most dark, like, mean shit you'd ever heard anyone say. It just feels so misguided. Yeah, I think particularly with the biggest problem of the movie, really, is I agree that I think the main character of Alan, like, it's such a tight rope for someone to balance on in terms of, like, you have to play this character who is paralyzed and has had, like, to go through so much. So, naturally, you could see why he might be upset, given there's so much that's become more difficult for him now that he's paralyzed. Um, But Jason Beige uh, plays the character... Like, such a fucking miserable piece of shit <laughs> in a way where it goes over from, like, oh, I get it, like, why you're upset, and it's kind of hurtful, but, like, I can see more of an empathetic point of view toward that character, um, especially when so much, like, early on when, like, he becomes paralyzed and his girlfriend leaves him for the doctor who operated on him, all this stuff. It's just like, wow, that's so rough. But then he's so mean to particularly Christine Forrest, who was George Romero's wife. As his nurse, and it's just like this thing has been helping you out this whole time, dude. You're a miserable piece <laughs> of shit. <laughs> Awful to her. She can't walk in a room without her saying something shitty to, to about her to somebody else or right to her face. Like, fuck this guy, man. Especially like after her bird is killed. Like that's like the most upsetting thing where she is naturally like very upset about. Like she's this lady who like lives in his fucking house and like the only attachment she has is like to a bird who was murdered by the monkey and the way he reacts to it, just like you they killed my bird your monkey killed my bird and she's just like that bird deserved to die <laughs> i think that's the thing where even though i don't find him endearing as a character i find a lot of his delivery unintentionally like so funny especially when he's delivering all these awful things people like his mother or even to the Kate McNeil character, the way that Jason Beige particularly delivers stuff, even to the monkey. Like, when he starts talking to the monkey during the climax of the movie, and he's just like, you fucking bitch of a monkey. And it's just cut to this fucking monkey's face. <laughs> it's so just, like, ridiculously hilarious to me. I think that's why, honestly, with that third act, it goes on long, sure, but I am just consistently entertained, whether in- intentionally or not, by just how, like, what were we thinking here, guys? What are you... <laughs> This, 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 it's like Christian said, so misguided. <laughs> Throughout the second and third acts, when you kind of notice that Ella the monkey is influencing his inner rage, he's basically playing Tom Cruise in the uh, Born on the Fourth of July scene where he's just like screaming at his mother. And it's <laughs> played out for like at least a good 45 minutes. Yeah, I mean, he goes so hard on her and then he obviously he's like you know because the monkey's in the house and the rage is building up but he says all this awful shit to her and she smacks the piss out of him like 10 times which is great yeah Yeah, i mean it's great but then it's like she's up she leaves the room and he's just like mother mother please make sure you lock your door mother (laughs) 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 you know it's so dumb it's just dumb i don't and it's it, there's such a loose thing where they have this psychic connection and she feeds off his rage and yet she makes him feel rage and it's like 
But like, why is it because of the drugs? I don't know. Like, it's, it's so poorly established as to like how that happens. I mean, it doesn't. It it isn't established. That's the thing at all. Like, like, is it the drugs or do these two just have some psychic link? I have no fucking clue. Because there's even the line like. I give all the drugs to all these other monkeys and they can't do anything you do. Maybe you need Alan. What? Okay. Whatever. <laughs> so poorly stitched together. Yeah. With, and particularly yeah, you're talking about John Pankow's character who is addicted also to the drugs he supplies. He's getting high on his own supply and his drugged out acting is phenomenally oh, terrible. It's it so bad. <laughs> no, it is the best. <laughs> What are you talking about? And then his fucking boss, Stephen Root. Yep, Stephen Root. Who also looks the same. He, he has not really aged a day, uh, for sure, with that. And also, I just love that like, it's one of those things where they, they cut a lot of stuff where apparently he was going to be much more bigger into the ultimate dark ending that would have involved him like injecting stuff into like the other monkeys and they would have like grown against him or whatever like i love the fact that they have that one scene they're trying to prove that like oh hey ella can call you if you're not here and things like that you're not here so they're gonna call you the monkey fucking manages to call him and steven root picks up on the other line just like what are you doing in my lab you son of a bitch what are you doing in there and then they hang up and there's just awkward moment (laughs) jason beach the most planned delivery is just like hey what was that about (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> I love the shot too of Tucci in the fucking pink towel having sex with the former <laughs> flame of uh, the Alan character like, I just love he's just like oh it looks like it was a wrong number don't you hate those oh yeah it makes me so scared and fucking <laughs> Tucci and also we should mention we haven't talked about this but like whenever like the monkey travels from place to place they have monkey vision yes which is so fucking funny every time they cut yes. to that and i love at the it's it's the dumbest okay it's so fucking dumb like he fake like he's only having the monkey vision in his dreams and he tells him like i know that you know i could see her running and i feel like blah 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 blah, blah. but then at the end he can just do it like he figures out how to just bring it on and he goes into that dumbass trance state where he's just bobbing his head back and forth and then as soon as like the the girl shows up he can snap out of the monkey vision like if you knew how to do this the whole time like what the i guess dire circumstances you know you you just learn, figure all this shit out but i gotta tell you if my life was being threatened by a monkey i don't know that i instantly be able to figure out a psychic link to, to have monkey vision with it i don't know I, I mean maybe it's just me i also don't think i could bite a monkey hard enough to kill it again maybe just me but <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> it's so fucking dumb and it's a, it's like 15 20 minutes of him just like no ella don't do this ella do this ella no ella we're friends ella you little bitch i'm gonna gouge <laughs> and you're like what the fuck dude like jesus christ it's horrible i think you can agree with this at least it's much more watchably horrible than a lot of the romero movies that would follow after this it's infinitely more watchable i will say this without giving anything away it is a hundred percent infinitely more watchable than bruiser of course which was your alternate and it's also more watchable than both of my bad for the redo I, i i would take this any day over either of them so yes it is watchable 
on a pure curiosity level. Like, how did this get greenlit? Like, who the fuck, like, read this script and was like, oh, yeah, that's going to be terrifying. Make everyone in it an asshole. Like, that's <laughs> <laughs> Too many likable characters. Yeah. I think we're, we're, the most tender moment is also one of the more, I'll give it credit for it's progressive for the time in terms of uh, having a sex scene between well, an able-bodied person and somebody with quadriplegia. It's just like, well, that's progressive for the time, but also... Why do we have to spend so long on those, like the passion of this particular scene? Oh, just like this, it, it feels just so weirdly incongruous. But once again, everything else just in the middle of it. Oh, yeah, also this extended sex scene that didn't really need to be there. Yeah, it's so long. And how long do we have to watch her gripping sort of the support system above his bed? Like, dude, there's it's a good like two, almost a steady minute and a half, two minutes on just her hands gripping this thing. I'm like, okay, cool. I don't know if there's supposed to be some kind of subtext here. If there is, I ain't getting it. <laughs> so move the fuck on. <laughs> the way he tries to seduce her, he just headbutts her in the chest. And, and you know, she and he's like, sorry, that she I love the camera shot where she's behind him, sort of longingly looking at him, and he's all depressed, not looking at her. And she just slowly unbuttons her blouse. I'm like, oh, get the what the fuck am I? <laughs> it's so dumb i can see why romero at least was attracted to this on the level of hey i want to be able to do a movie where my protagonist is not able to move that much and i think he tries to take advantage of that particularly there's a lot of great shots of like the cameras are focusing on him as he's turning around in the chair or even trying to especially like work with the monkeys like i said i think the editing does such a great job of really building up the tension of the monkey being there even though on its face and in practice it's fucking ridiculous um i think they managed to build a lot more tension than they would have expected out of that i think more on a purely visual level as opposed to as we mentioned the story completely falls apart with that i feel like he was so restricted that he isn't really able to kind of have any of those really great like moments that you'd that you'd see in like any of the dead movies or like creep show or anything. Yeah. I think he's trying to put some of that out there. And I think there are a few moments where it gasps out, but at the same time, it definitely feels way more of like, Oh, Hey, I'm restricted by not just a studio. That's kind of breathing down my neck, but um, the, the weird constraints of he wrote the screenplay, but it was also based on this novel, which feels like if I had read this novel, just like, Oh, this was in an airport and it was a bestseller briefly. And it, it, it just feels like, oh, I gotta, like, really work around this dumb idea, quite frankly. It feels like it's a lot of, let me work around this dumb idea for, like, some creative things I can do. To the point where I will even say, rewatching it, I had forgotten about, like, how they ultimately resolves with the monkey. And I will appreciate, like, how this sort of escalation of, like, oh, how many of these people die and how much, like, the, the monkey's able to, like, turn off the electricity and stuff like that, even though it's ridiculous. At the same time, there was a point where I'm like, oh, my God, how does this resolve again? How does he get out of this? I'm kind of intrigued by that. And then, as Adam mentioned, it's so hilarious <laughs> when he fucking grabs that monkey by the sp- his teeth, like his spine. Dude, and just... he shakes it around like a dog with a rope. <laughs> like when you play tug of war with your dog and it just starts going nuts trying to get away from you. That's what he does with this fucking monkey. And then he throws it into the stereo. Oh, pure gold. Just gold. Great cinema. Perfect, beautiful yeah, cinema. <laughs> monkey death. 10 out of 10 for monkey deaths. No, I mean, it's no Congo in terms of monkey death, Adam. That's true. Well, because Congo, there was a plethora of monkey death. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 70 minutes. <laughs> I 
think Ella just needed one of those martinis that Amy would always have in Congo. I'd, I'd forgotten that, obviously, as with any movie you watch, live-action movie, where it's like, oh, hey, there's a animal making noise, Frank Welker did it. I just realized, like, man, this is him just doing, like, the prep for the Abu voice. Because it's, like, <laughs> the, the exact same. He's so good. I don't understand how the fuck that guy can do that. I mean, it's perfect. Yeah, like, I love, there was a story where somebody, some other voice actor talked about, I, he was recording, like, a Jason 2 Frank Welker, and in the script there was something about, like, uh, hey, Frank, we need, like, a dragon snarling. He's like, okay, I got that. And then he does, like, a dragon snarling, a voice that doesn't exist. And he was able to just do it on the fly. Um, but let's go ahead and get into final thoughts on Monkey Shines. Christian, your final thoughts, and also, would you say this is the worst Romero movie, or would you say it's at least a more watchably bad one? I'd definitely say that this is a more watchable one, just because it's so fascinating in how much of an oddity this is. It does come off as something that's very heavily handed by the studio, handled by the studio and everything. George A. Romero doesn't seem like he, he seems so restricted and unable to really kind of go out on his own. But yeah, overall, I'd say that uh, if you're looking to watch a man uh, try to get a monkey to dance with him in his wheelchair, it's a 10 out of 10. <laughs> it's a Tepegi Lee, as we all wanted. Um, yes. As we all want at any time. Uh, but, but Adam, your final thoughts on Monkey Shines. Look. It's terrible. It's super long. It's just... But it's so batshit crazy. And there's so many weird sort of choices in here. Especially with the, like... The relationship between the monkey and Alan. Not the fact that, obviously, the psychic stuff. But there's, like, almost like a, a romantic relationship. And it's really bizarre. And Stanley Tucci has a great body. But <laughs> it's just... It's so bizarre and weird that I, I don't, this is not, well, A, it's not for anybody, but it's not, it's definitely not for everybody too. You got to be either a George Romero big fan or into sort of obscure, weird sort of late eighties horror. And, and just, that's the only thing I could say for people who might be interested in it. If you're not sort of into that stuff, I mean, you got, you might have to pass this one up. Yeah, if you're sort of a Romero completionist, or if yeah. you are someone who enjoys, not necessarily so bad it's good movies, but so bad it's a fascinating car wreck to watch kind of movies. That's definitely what this fits as. Because like you mentioned, it's not really for anybody. It has all these weird turns. Like you mentioned, we mentioned the, the whole weird back and forth between the monkey and the Alan character. This movie could just be called Single Capuchin Female. Because uh-huh. like, it, it, it plays out just like one of those like, weird erotic thrillers it's just like oh have you been messing with my man well i'll cut you and the monkey has so many points where like they holds a razor or a syringe filled with like this poisonous drug of some sort not not to run on your final thoughts but how great would there have been if there was a scene where the monkey was wearing a blonde wig and a blue flannel coming down the stairs (laughs) (laughs) and for some reason alan can't tell the difference until it's too late morgan what are you doing here Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> oh, Maggie, have you gotten shorter? And also hairier? You lost weight, baby! What? <laughs> no, yeah, but that, that's the thing. is that I think that's what's so interesting is this movie is very serious. Like, it's taking itself so seriously, which I think makes all of the ridiculous things that happen so fascinating. I think that's where, like, Romero's real dedication 
kind of like it backfires on him here but at least in a more fascinating way because yeah he's made so many worse movies that we'll probably mention in our next segment a bit later um that just like are so serious but also i think a lot more droll a lot more boring they're like shorter even than this movie but this one i don't think i quite feel the length as much because at every single 10 minute mark there's like oh what wait we're going here now and then we're going that way and then we're, we're just doing the weirdest like run around the block with whatever the hell is going on here. It, I, I find it so fascinating to watch. It's not like I said, there's funny bad moments in it, but it's more just like a curiosity to watch it. Once again, like a massive cinematic train wreck. But like I said, I think that makes the best of his lesser works. But uh, before we get into our next segment, here is a, a message from the ESO crew that we fully endorse. Welcome to Dr. Geek's Laboratory. Hello, everyone. Dr. Geek here with a shout out to all the scientists who worked tirelessly to bring a COVID-19 vaccine into reality. <laughs> Let's face it, creating something of this magnitude is a miracle worthy of Dr. McCoy himself. And now, Dr. Geek needs you to do your part. Remember, each shot is one small step back to normal, one giant leap to putting the pandemic behind us. We can do this. For more information, visit vaccines.gov to find your nearest provider. All right, now we're doing the double radio, uh, which is our segment every week where Adam and I program the best and worst possible double feature based around the topic that we're doing for the week. Uh, so to compliment, like, oh, hey, if you want to watch some movies related to Romero, we recommend a couple of these. And if you don't want to watch them, uh, we recommend a couple of these. And Adam and I uh, have uh, four movies prepared each. And Christian Anderson also has uh, a few as well. Yes, I do. All right. Well, we'll definitely get into all of ours here. But uh, first, I want to uh, go ahead and spotlight my movies. So first, my good double feature um, involves two, I think, um, underrated ones for Romero, where keep in mind, we also opened this up to movies he was at least involved in, maybe not as a director, but as like writer, maybe producer to some extent. And uh, for mine, I have one he directed and one he was involved with as a writer. First off, I have Season of the Witch, or one of its many other titles, like on Letterboxd for some reason, it's called Hungry Wives, which I think was its original title, which for the record, uh, way worse name. Much worse name. <laughs> like, they play Season of Witch in the movie. Just use that fucking title. Uh, but Season of the Witch, it's basically about this woman who's a housewife in the 70s who... Um, is in a pretty miserable sort of relationship and with both her um, husband and her daughter kind of like ignores her and she's kind of having a love affair on the side but also she starts to pick up witchcraft and I think this movie is a very surreal one it's not as horror focused I think that has disappointed some people who might like dig back into Romero's filmography and here season of the witch oh it's probably going to be really spooky it's not as spooky as I think his other movies but I think it has very interesting creepy moments I think particularly the main character has a recurring nightmare involving a home invasion with a guy in a mask uh that is very chilling like i watched this at night and i literally like paused the movie and went to like lock my front door just to make sure it was locked <laughs> kind of thing because it's just like that engrossing and terrifying and even the stuff around that there's still a lot of like just weird very early 70s kind of kitsch to it that i think makes it interesting especially sort of like a feminist movie for that time i, I think that one it's kind of gotten lost to time and i would uh, i just watched it recently i think it's Holds up incredibly well. Um, but then the other pick I have, which is the one he wrote one of a few segments for, um, is Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, which is technically a film adaptation uh, or like sort of continuation of the Tales from the Dark Side show that was on in the 80s. Um, it came out in 1990. And Romero has involvement with one segment that he wrote, which uh, this it was this segment called The Black Cat. 
which basically involves a cat fucking around with uh, an old man played by William Hickey, who's always great, though, the blessing guy from uh, Christmas Vacation. Very fun segment there. Um, and it's one of, there's a, a few other segments. There's the first one that involves, like, a mummy that, it's not a great segment, but it's worth watching for the stellar young cast it has from 1990. Like, oh, the young Steve Buscemi, young Julianne Moore, what are you doing here? Um, it's interesting on that level alone. And then also, I think my favorite segment, which is the third one, um, that involves basically, I don't want to go into too much spoilery detail, but sort of like a, uh, deal with a demonic entity that I think, um, has such a gut punch of an ending. Um, it's not as Romero focused, but it does have a lot of players involved, um, including Savini did some of like the effects work and John Harrison, who did the score for Day of the Dead and a few other of his movies directed it. I would consider it a solid, uh, sort of companion piece to Creepshow. I think it's even better than Creepshow too, quite frankly. Much better anthology that I think has gone to the wayside a lot. But then uh, for my bad double feature, I have, unfortunately, the two movies that Romero made in the 90s. I have, first off, uh, The Dark Half, which is, I think, one of the more forgettable, bland Stephen King adaptations. It's basically this movie involving, like, this uh, writer character, Shocker, um, who finds that there's, like, sort of an evil twin version of him that exists from his novel that's come to life. Um, it, both played by Timothy Hutton, I think, quite frankly, quite poorly. Um, and I think it just kind of shows Romero at a very sad state, uh, where it's not his worst movie, but it feels like kind of his most, like, creatively bankrupt kind of movie, I would argue. Um, and then the other one I have is also an anthology, uh, where Romero directed one of two segments for, called Two Evil Eyes, where um, one was directed by Romero, which is a segment that involves basically a woman who, played by Adrian Barbeau, who ends up uh, marrying this richer guy who's dying for his money. Her and the, the doctor who she's having an affair with end up accidentally killing him before the money can get transferred into their account, but find out there's some otherworldly uh, kind of uh, spiritual connection with the dead body that I don't think works, and I think it's like, poorly lit and it feels kind of like oh this was a tv pilot that got yanked out i believe was the actual thing of it so it doesn't it's not that well put together uh but i at least give credit that like it's at least a more interesting idea than the second segment which is directed by dario argento um that involves a creepy crime set photographer who ends up getting followed around by a cat once again uh that crime scene photographer played by harvey keitel who wears a beret most of the time it's fucking terrible. Both segments are, but that one in particular is woof. So I definitely say avoid those two, but watch the other ones I recommended earlier. Now, you know, I haven't seen Season of the Witch in years. We talked about this. I, I definitely want to revisit it. Um, you know, Tales from the Dark Side was one of my uh, redos, so I had to fucking go with a backup because you fucking suck. But yeah, I definitely think that's a super solid anthology movie, and I agree it's better than Creepshow 2. And uh, the other two you picked are, um, man, I don't know. They're, no, they're fucking terrible. They're terrible, terrible movies. They're, they're, they're awful. You and I have talked elsewhere about the dark half, and yeah, it's atrocious. Yeah, two evil eyes. It just goes to show, you know, maybe Romero and Argento at the time were sort of done. But Adam, what about uh, your choices for the red due, especially considering you had to make some last-minute changes? Last-minute changes. So I, I put Night of the Dead 90 on here. Um, 
which, you know, obviously he gets a producer credit and a screenplay credit on. Uh, and we all know the story, you know, Night Living Dead, the original wasn't copyrighted, so they made this one and copyrighted as a way to sort of maybe uh, get some money for, you know, the original creators that they were definitely owed. Um, but I think it's a super, super solid uh, remake and also a very solid zombie film. Just what they do with the Barbara character alone sort of boosts it up, too. They, they really make Barbara a more fleshed out, capable character. Um, compared to the original, and uh, you know, Pat Tallman is is fantastic in it, uh, and, and so is um, Tony Todd is the new Ben. He's just wonderful. Uh, so that that's one of them. Like I said, it, it's one of the best horror remakes ever, and it's definitely uh, in the top of sort of zombie movies as well, in my opinion. And for my alternate, I you know, last minute, but I chose my what was my alternate for this uh, Martin, which is such a unique sort of take on the vampire genre that really has never been done before or since and it's a really solid little movie uh my thing about martin i I think maybe john amplis the star might be the weakest link of the movie not to say he's bad but everybody else around him is really good it's it's a really solid little sort of thriller movie for my bad ones I had, unfortunately, the last Dead movie and the last movie he made, uh, Survival Dead. It is horrible. The lead actor, well, if you want to even call him an actor based on this performance, he's so unlikable and you don't care. And and the problem is because it's kind of a cool concept, basically the Hatfield and McCoys with zombies involved really cool idea there's some really cool ideas i like the zombie on the horse all that stuff it's just it's really shoddily made it looks bad it's acted bad it's just no fun and and it's unfortunately it relies too much on cgi instead of practical for a lot of the kills and uh for my for the second one i i put there it's technically two movies they were released as george romero's dead time stories um which he was like an executive producer on and they're anthology movies, and they are so bad. It is like a prime example of when you think of bad anthology movies, these two deserve a spot there. There, No segment stands out. None of the acting stands out. None of the set design, uh, effects, creatures, anything works. It's just they are a mess of movies. I'd never heard of a Dead Time Stories thing before. Uh, that sounds bad, and I wouldn't probably want to bother with them um survival i will agree i think is disappointing more because i think compared to diary which we've talked about previously and i think is the worst movie um that one has a lot more compelling ideas to it that makes it technically i think slightly better as a movie but also it has like so many like poor turns that are, are pretty bad though i'll give credit to kenneth walsh who plays one of like the yeah kenneth walsh steals he's very good i think he's if you're gonna watch that movie we don't recommend it necessarily but he's like the the standout performer in it for sure um and then yeah i mean I, night of the living dead the remake i I don't know if I'll go as far as to say I think it's one of the best horror remakes ever, but I think it's one of the few that has at least a big element that improves on, which I agree with. Patricia Tallman as the Barbara character, I think they do such a phenomenal job of uh, really progressing her as a character from what we had originally done. Even Romero's admitted this, that the portrayal of Barbara was a disappointment he has with that original movie. Um, and she's so much more, like, you know, helpless and doesn't have any drive as opposed to Patricia Tallman's version of that character is uh, stellar. But Christian... What are your choices? Alrighty, so for uh, best of, I chose George A. Romero's transitional movies between his of the dead movies, 
Um, I would have chosen Martin, but much like Dawn of the Dead, it's so inaccessible, and I wish they would bring it back, like, in a nice release. So I went with The Crazies, uh, the movie that he did between Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. Um, Arrow Video has it out. They did a really good job restoring it, and it has a, a bunch of great features on it. And, of course, uh, my other choice is the movie we talked about uh, on my last episode with you guys, Creep Show. It's such a fantastic transition between Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead. And it works so well because it's a perfect blend of both Stephen King and George A. Romero's strengths that I'd say it's damn near one of my favorite horror movies uh if not my favorite anthology movie and then uh for worst of i chose both of the day of the dead remakes uh uh the 2008 remake it it seems like it's trying so hard to be the Zack snyder dawn of the dead remake that it's like it even casts ving rames as rogues <laughs> and mina savari's back and you're just like it's like you guys were in the other remake, but you're not reprising anything. You're just playing like these different characters. It's it's one I haven't seen in forever, but it's one that I'm just like I'm not enthusiastic to go back to revisit. And then um, Day of the Dead Bloodline, Thomas, you brought that up. It completely shits on the Bud character, and just it's the original is such a great movie. It's like yeah, I get why they kept on trying to remake remake that stuff since there's several remakes of Night of the Living Dead, but neither of the remakes of Day of the Dead have worked. Yeah, Day of the Dead Bloodline, like I kind of mentioned earlier, what what they do to Bub, which, a bit of content warning with, um, I can't believe I'm saying this in a fucking zombie movie, but sexual assault warning. Um, the Bub character is rewritten where, like, he initially tries to assault the main character, at the opening before he turns into a zombie. And then later he has the human remnant of his personality that makes him want to rape the main character again and he chases after her. It I can't emphasize enough how fucking awful and exploitative and shitty that is as a thing to do. And just ruin once again like such an interesting character. It is like it ruins so much and it's just like it's like I said it's one of the worst examples of just like to go from a Day of the Dead to that Day of the Dead Bloodline movie. It's uh, it's incredibly offensive, not just on that content warning level, but just on any kind of cinematic level. Just a, a giant fuck you to everybody involved with that movie. <laughs> I mean, just because you have the name recognition of a huge franchise doesn't mean that you have the right to like completely shit all over it. No, I completely agree. And, you know, the thing with the other one, uh, you know, and I'm not pointing anything out, but you know, Mina Savari wasn't technically, she wasn't in Dawn of the Dead. But they definitely, with Ving Rhames, because I remember the trailers for it, they wanted people to think it was a sequel to Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. A thousand mm-hmm. percent. And it fails on every fucking level. I mean, and what they do with the Bub character in that, first of all, he becomes Bud. He's not even Bub. And the reason that he doesn't eat people is because he was a vegan before he was killed. That's their explanation. How fucking stupid. Oh, and also, Nick Cannon. So, you know, big win. I don't even want to give the Jonathan Shake Bloodlines one even attention. It's it's so fucking atrocious. I mean, it's terrible. 
And then obviously we've said everything we can say about Creepshow. It, it is, if not the greatest horror anthology of all time, it's tied for number one, in my opinion, with Trick or Treat. It's just, it's a perfect movie. And uh, I mean, Crazies, I like it. I don't think it's great, but I do think it, it, it's pretty solid. Uh, that's one, unfortunately, that's one of the few times where I actually do prefer the remake. I really enjoy the remake to The Crazies. Which we've talked about also previously on the show. Right, exactly. Go and go to our backlog. Uh, but I do, uh, I do like the crazies. I still think it's a pretty fun little, um, almost experiment from Romero. But it also feels like one that, like, there's enough things that I think are interesting in that one, but also enough things that they get wrong to where I think it's one of the ones worth remaking. I would definitely agree upon that. Um, and you know, it was mentioned. I, I didn't have much chance to say about Martin, but if nothing else, with Martin. That's the one I would definitely recommend anybody seek out because that was the most underrated, I would say, of his yeah. entire filmography. Because it's it's basically like imagine a vampire story that is much more in the vein of like a taxi driver, where it's this character who feels like you're you're not quite sure where he is mentally, where he might not even be a vampire, and he's more of just like a serial killer. It has such an interesting psychological line that does such an incredible job with. Um, and also a shout out, you know, to I, I would argue John Amplis, as much as Adam was decrying him early, I think it's a phenomenal performance. And I think it has, like, so many different layers, too, especially that character for where, like, there's a lot of tragedy, but also a lot of, like, genuine unnerving that's going on with him. Um, yeah, it, It's a stellar vampire movie that deserves a lot more love. But on that note, uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, we're going to start exiting the show here. We want to thank some people, like... Uh, Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our art. Uh, follow him on at Night of Water. That's uh, Night with a K underscore of underscore water uh, to check out all of his other great work. And uh, thank you to our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you get uh, to vote in polls for stuff that we either one of the two movies or also even, you know, topics we do for the show. Like this week, you all get to vote on a poll that'll be for in July. We wanted to do an action hero spotlight episode that we haven't done one of those in a bit. And uh, we're picking between uh, the two action stars of Jason Statham, versus Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yay! Yep, the muscles from Brussels versus the brute from Britain, which is my thing. Copyright term. Brute <laughs> from Britain. <laughs> Tell them this around 2021. Which I know, Adam, you're a big fan of both of their various Oh, fuck yes. I grew up with Van Damme, man. He was like my guy growing up. He was, he was the fun action hero growing up. Uh... Yeah, absolutely, absolutely love Van Damme. Wanted to be him, wanted to bang him, whatever. Um, but yeah, Statham now is like, you know, he's kind of the king of that sort of genre because it feels like he's still making those type of movies. And, and you know, a lot of bad, some good, but I love him. Christian, you are a patron. Yes, I am. Who Who, who would you go for in this? Ooh, I'm very conflicted i might have to go with john glaude van damme though because i want to yeah. see what which ones you guys are going to pick on that yeah and to be fair van damme is the one i have the less experience with 
uh, Statham, I've seen a fair amount of his action turns, but Van Damme is more of an enigma to me. I'd be curious to to watch more. But uh, also, you can listen to bonus podcasts on the Patreon, uh, including On the Edge of Relevance, which there's a lot of ones that are going to be coming out here where we talk about more recent movies that are either hitting streaming or even theaters. Uh, like, right, right around this time uh, this is out, there will be one for In the Heights, a, wait, I'm sorry, musical film? Adam, you're willing to cover that? I gotta try it. I gotta try. I gotta see what I'm missing. Uh, I'm, I, I, you know, I haven't watched it yet. I'm gonna watch it tomorrow, and hot. Uh, yeah, I'm predict. I'm going to predict now, and I hope I'm wrong. That I'm gonna be like, yeah, right, whatever. Yeah, it was okay. It was okay. Cool. Jimmy Smiths. All right. Well, well, you'll get to hear all about that, especially. Uh, and I, we were intentionally recording it tomorrow because I'm seeing it in a big ass Dolby theater. Because it feels like a movie worth seeing in a big-ass screen. You all get to hear about that on the Patreon. Like I said, for just $1 a month, you get to hear that, all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, you know, you be like Christian, which thank you for being not just a patron, but also for being our guest. We always love having you on, Christian. Thank you for having me, guys. I really enjoy the show, and, you know, I love throwing my support whenever I can. And, you know, I'm really glad that you guys had me... Uh, talk about one of one of my favorite directors you can find me on instagram uh uh under crazy diamond 0622 i just post about you know movies i'm watching records i buy tiki drinks i make and then uh you can find me on letterboxd at uh chris alvarez uh you'll just find a picture of the big geeky guy in a haunted mansion tiki shirt I'm glad you added the second part because Big Geeky Guy is it's hard to narrow down on Letterboxd. <laughs> There's like two other ones here on here. Um, but uh, you can find us uh, at DEDBpod on Twitter and Facebook. We also uh, recommend you submit feedback to us either there or doubleedgeableville at gmail.com, all spelled out. And if you can't support us on the Patreon, why not help us out by buying some merchandise with either our old or new logo on it because uh, we get a bit of a kickback from that over at the T Public. ESO Network Store. Uh, there'll be a link in the description and all that. It helps us out if you were to do... Oh, what, Adam? Fire merch, fire merch. All the passion. Yep. Love hearing it. Um, <laughs> and uh, for more of our individual antics, you can find me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd as at NotTheWho'sTommy uh, for all my musings about different stuff. And also, I do some writing at both MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred.com. Uh, you can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. I'm also on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. You can also find me in all your mom's diaries. Yeah! I hope you gave them a lot of passion and respect that you gave into that fucking thing for the SOT public story. All that fiery passion. <laughs> but um, if you want to find more of uh, us, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, or other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on the ESO Network, why not dig into the, all the other great shows that are on there? Or if you want even shows we did before we joined ESO, go to our main Podbean feed. And if nothing else, you can't buy the merchandise or support us monthly on the Patreon the way to help us out for completely free is to rate, review, or share the show around because that gives us more visibility and gets people to, you know, listen and uh, rises up whatever weird algorithm the podcast Apple Store does. Yeah, whatever the hell that's all about. But yeah, just share us around. We'd appreciate it. We like it. Uh, you know, if you don't, 
you can still keep listening, I guess. Yes, for sure. But, Adam, it's time to finally pick our films for next week. And, uh, you know, next week, it's a big week. Because uh, uh, our patrons voted on this particular topic since places are opening up, people are getting vaccinated. And you know what that means? It's time to revisit our family. Because we're doing the Fast and Furious franchise, finally. Uh, curious franchise, we've been wanting to do an episode about this for a little over a year since Fast 9 got delayed. But now we all things are clear that it is coming out in theaters finally again uh f9 and uh, you know adam and i have been doing some movie night stuff on our own and uh, we're both uh, have revisited all the fast movies and it's a very fascinating franchise to talk about uh you know it's uh, it's definitely that well well, we'll get into all that, because, uh, Adam, you have the two bad choices for uh-huh. that particular episode. I got the two good ones. And uh, each week, uh, we assign them between 1 and 10 for our good and bad choices. And, uh, you know, one of us ends up picking a number between 1 and 10, and that gets us our good and bad choice. But keep in mind, the Godfather rule is still in effect, which basically means that if Adam or I hear one of these choices and we don't like it, uh, we have the ability to do this only once for the next year to veto it by saying... Uh, Actually, I'll take the cannoli as the magic word. So Adam and I both have that option. But Christian, since you're our guest, please pick a number between 1 and 10 for my two good choices. All right. So for your two good choices, I will go with probably my favorite of the Fast and Furious series, 5. Oh, Christian. How how serendipitous that you would say that. Because at number 7, I had... Fast Five, which I would agree is yes. the best film of the franchise. Yeah. Well, I'm with Fast Five. Do you want to take the cannoli? Fuck no. Why would I want to like not talk about the best one? All right. Well, I, uh, to be fair, Adam, at number two, I think we had one that we both really like as well. That despite some bad stuff with the production, it's uh, still a pretty tremendous one. I would say the second best, Furious Seven. Yeah, I agree. I think that's. I think that is the second best for sure. Uh, I got a little bit of problems with the length of it, but it's still, I think it's fine. Now, Adam. You got your two bad choices. So Christian, yeah. for his. Alrighty, I'm going to go with probably my least favorite entry in the franchise with number three. Well, not as serendipitous, uh, but at number one, I have the sequel to, well, not the sequel, but the follow-up to Thomas's alternate. I have Furious 8. Or a Fate of the Furious, I believe. Is oh, whatever the fuck. Whatever. <laughs> yes, I have that one. With, uh... <laughs> so, uh, Thomas, would you like to take the cannoli? I have a lot of things I want to say about Fate of the Furious, so no, I will not be taking the cannoli. I, I want to shit on this movie pretty hard. Spoilers, it's bad. <laughs> but uh, what was your other choice? Uh, the fourth one, Fast and Furious, which shouldn't be as boring as it is, but it is a bore fest. It's a very transitional movie in that franchise, and I give it credit for at least being that transitional point, but uh, it still is pretty weak. Not the weakest, but pretty weak. But we'll be talking all about the Fast and Furious franchise next time. Until then, everybody, uh, just make sure to uh, avoid the dead that might be coming for you. Stay in those mines. Make them choke on them if they find you. Don't bang your monkey. Also that. We definitely not recommend doing that.
This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.